welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who made a plan to go to confession and actually went. I'm so proud of you. When we were making plans for this recording, you were like, I have to record after we go to confession. And I know that you've been planning on it, so... Yeah, for anyone keeping track of my faith life, I guess... I mean, uh, <laughs> isn't this podcast sort of us keeping track of your faith life? To be fair, we don't talk about faith very much. We talk about like theology and, and like history the rules and of stuff. it. Yeah, we don't we don't get all uh, yeah. There's very spiritual. little discussion of like what this feels like in your body. Yeah, but if anyone's wondering, the the grace tank is full up. I'm proud of you. <laughs> How does it feel to be full up on your grace tank? That's pretty good. Good. Yeah. Had a nice chat with a priest. Yeah, it was good. She's really, she was really cool. Good. Uh, do you have, did you have to like say any prayers for your, for your confession? Are you allowed to say? What is the rules? I mean, the, the priest is not allowed to say anything. Sure. Uh, I suppose I could say whatever I wanted. Sure. Um, you could make it up. <laughs> what? No. I, I mean, like, I, I can tell you what happened. I mean, you I can't, you can't make it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know any better. But, like, lying is a sin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you make a fair point. <laughs> I mean, you could. It would just sort of contradict the purpose. Um. <laughs> I guess I'm just, like, the reason I ask is that, in my mind, like, confessional is, like, you you talk with the priest, and then the priest is, like, you must say blank Hail Marys or whatever for your sins. So, what's so funny is I, um, this is my first time, this was my first time doing confession with an Episcopal priest. Sure. And she was like, I don't know if Catholics are different, because, like, all I know about Catholic confession is from movies. Same. I, <laughs> so, she awesome. said the exact, she has seen the same movies as you, apparently. She was like, I don't know if the penance they give you is, like, say three Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. I mean, that's sometimes, but not always. No, the one she gave me was, for the next week, meditate on Psalm 1. Ooh. Yeah. I don't feel like we ever talk about Psalm 1. They all are, like, crazy three-digit numbers. But presumably there had to be a 1 if there's a, like, 120. There's 150. Sure. Because that's the three three sets of 50 Our Fathers was the beginning of the rosary. Um, Also, there are 151 original Pokemon and at some point, I'm going to assign... Pokemon to Psalms? Two Psalms, yep. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I was once with some friends where we tried to write cocktails for every Pokemon. Uh, yeah, that I I remember that happening. Yes, it um, was. Uh, the friends of mine who were there, you know who you are. That was also the same night I had Malort for the first time. I'm sorry. You know, it had to happen at some point. <laughs> But anyway, we're not talking about... Uh, Malort or Pokemon or... Or Psalms. Ooh, what are we talking about? Today, we're going to talk about Samuel Seabury and the founding of the Episcopal Church. Ooh, why does the name Samuel Seabury sound familiar? You probably know this name because Samuel Seabury is the nerd in Hamilton. I was going to say, is this a character from Hamilton? Or is it just because I've spent too much time near that seminary up at Northwestern? Um, both are him. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> um, this is just so many things. <laughs> yeah, uh, Samuel Seabury, real life rival of Alexander Hamilton, but we will get to that in a bit. Great. I was about to say before or after he founds the Episcopal Church, but I figure it will come up in the story and then you could just tell me. Yeah, both of those things come up in this story. Oh boy. So, where are we? We're in history. So, we're going to start a little before all of this with our friend Samuel, and we're going to do some background. <laughs> 
I think mm-hmm. most people are kind of vaguely aware of how the Anglican Church came to be. Yes, Henry VIII happened. Yes. Catherine uh, of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, divorce, blah, blah, blah. Boom, Anglicans. <laughs> so not not divorce. Um, annulment? Annulment. Okay. He tried to get an annulment and was refused an annulment. Because he didn't believe that he could have been lawfully married to Catherine of Aragon because she was married to his brother first. I think that's the bit. Yes. And then there's also a bit about not having um, consummated the marriage. And yeah, lots yeah. of in the weed stuff there. We don't sure. need to get into it. Great. Well, this is not a European history podcast. It is, in fact, a religious history podcast. So the annulment was definitely a big part of it, but there were other issues. One in particular was British frustration at being ruled by a far-off power, meaning Rome. That is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just delightfully ironic. Oh my god. <laughs> I know that we have a lot of listeners in Britain, and I just want to say that you guys are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the people who listen to this that we know in the UK are not huge fans of the monarchy or colonialism, so I don't think they're going to. I think they will appreciate that this is hilarious. All right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, a lot of English people at the time, Henry in particular, were very interested in ideas associated with the Reformation. Like those of Erasmus, who we've mentioned before on yeah, the Confession episode. for sure. So, those were... There's a few... It's more complex than just Henry wanted the divorce. So, we're, we're split. Okay. Is, is the, the, the main point there. But what happens is that the Anglican Church is founded. Yes. And, so, we've got this new church, and as the British Empire spread, the Anglican Church spread with it to okay. all of the colonies, groups like... The Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, founded in 1699. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, founded in 1701. And the Church Missionary Society, which was founded in 1799. These were all groups that spread the Anglican religion to local indigenous peoples. Great. I mean, not great, but great. (laughs) Acknowledging that happened. Sure. (laughs) But, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but the first pilgrims who came from England to the United States were not Anglicans, right? Uh, You are jumping a little bit ahead. It's, again, more complicated than you were led to believe. I'm sure that, like, elementary school history was probably more complicated than that. It's more than just those hats with the funny buckles. You know. (laughs) <laughs> or the shoes with the buckles. Yeah, just lots of buckles. Why so many buckles? I don't know. You'd think they would have been trying to save things and because like, they were going to... They were taking that long trip on a boat. It's true. I don't know. Okay, well, if we're not going to get to the pilgrims yet, what happens after more imperialist Anglicanism? We're still talking about imperialism. In a mirroring of political structure, these new churches that were founded in the different colonies... They considered themselves loyal to the Archbishop of Canterbury back in England, but they all had some degree of autonomy over local matters. Great. They had to swear loyalty to the crown and to England, but they could kind of take care of their local things. Cool. That makes sense. Another, like, only kind of tangentially related to this topic, but just fun thing I learned in my research, is the first Anglican service in what would later become the United States occurred in 1579. Wow, that's really early. Sir Francis Drake landed his ship off of the coast of what is now California 
for repairs during one of his expeditions. That's amazing. It's not even on the coast you would think it would be on. Yeah. Everything about this is wild. <laughs> yeah, on, it was either July 23rd or 24th, he and his men held a religious service. The expedition's historian was an Anglican clergyman, uh, the Reverend Francis Fletcher, and he led the service out of the Book of Common Prayer. There you go. Because if I've learned anything about Episcopalians, it's that it's good to have a Book of Common Prayer handy for all long travels. This is true. Definitely for for camping and exploring. Yes. Important. Though not Episcopalian. These were still Anglicans. Straight up Anglicans. (laughs) Another weird thing. While this service was occurring, a group of native people came across it and were just watching what was happening. Sure. They were doing something weird. Yeah. And Drake was worried that these natives were blaspheming because he thought that they were treating the sailors like gods. So to stop this, he made a big show of lifting his hands to the sky and praying for God to open the eyes of the idolaters to the knowledge of him and Jesus Christ, the salvation of the Gentiles. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I like that he was really worried that he was going to accidentally be worshipped as a god. Oh yeah, very concerned. So concerned. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's our first experience of the Anglican Church in what would later be the U.S., Catholicism got there a little bit earlier, just because Spanish explorers... Sure. And then the French and Mm -hmm. all the other Catholics. Yeah. For trapping and exploring and whatnot and so forth. Exactly. Great. Now we're at the colonies. Okay, great. I'm ready. And the typical narrative is safe haven for religious freedom. Sure. Which implies that they wouldn't be Anglicans if they were coming from England, which at that point was Anglican. Um, I think, actually, at that exact point, it was Catholic. Okay. It, it goes back and forth a lot. <laughs> sure. Oh, right, because then there was, like, Queen Mary, who was Catholic, and yada yada, and yeah. back and forth, and so on, and so forth. Yeah, England goes back and forth a bunch in this time period. Um, so, really, the more accurate story of religion in the colonies is that different colonies had different standard religions. Okay. And if not by law, at least by social custom, you were expected to follow the local religion. Yeah, I know that um, there there's a podcast that talks a little bit about that as it pertains to the Salem Witch Trials, which would have been sort of after the founding of the United States, but a little bit about... No, I guess... No, that would have been before. Yeah, um, in the sort of, like, colonial insularity of religion in communities. Um, So if you haven't listened to Unobscured, which is an Aaron Mankey um, long-form podcast about the Salem Witch Trials, the first few episodes talk a lot about the sort of social implications of being and or not being a part of the major religious group of the colony. Mm-hmm. I, I have listened to that. I I like uh, Unobscured. It was, it was really good. It was. Yeah, and the area he was talking about, New England area, was Puritans, um, also called Congregationalists. Okay. Um, and so that, where do they fall on the, like, spectrum of denominations that we know? They are going to be less liturgical Okay. They're more like, I'd say, closest to Calvinists. Okay. From what, from what we've talked about. So yeah, that's that's that group. Okay, yeah. A lot more focus on the Bible rather than any other kind of other books that were written by theologians. Sure. Then we've got uh, Quakers founded Pennsylvania. Yep. Though they were pretty chill with everybody. Yeah, they're Quakers. They're good at that. Catholics founded Maryland. Yep, Mary. Uh, yep, exactly. Uh, the South was mostly Baptists, um, some Anglicans, 
But in the Carolinas and Virginia, the Church of England was the state religion, and taxes went to support the clergy and church buildings. Well, there we go. Yeah. So, Anglicans there from the very beginning, from Jamestown. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, straight up. Mm-hmm. Though, as the colonies grew, people moved around, and people planted different churches all over. Mm-hmm. So, by the time we get to the American Revolution, you, there's Anglicans kind of in all the colonies. Sure. Even though they're all technically part of the same church, they differed regionally in their views. Southern Anglicans tended to be more supportive of the revolution, um, whereas Northerners maintained their ties more with the English Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Okay. And do you think that their connection with the Church of England had something to do with that, necessarily? Or do you think that was just sort of politics that happened to mirror Bridgel's? I mean, I think it's probably because there was more of a a shipping culture in the North. Mm-hmm. And so you do have that more regular exchange with England, maybe. Sure. That makes maybe. sense. This is all speculation. I don't know. Hey, I will accept your speculation. <laughs> so regionally, a little different. One of these loyalist Northern Anglicans was Samuel Seabury. There we go. Samuel was born November 30th, 1729 in North Groton, Connecticut, to Samuel Seabury Sr. and Abigail Seabury. Sr. was a Congregationalist minister. Okay. But shortly after his son was born, he resigned so that he could go to become an Anglican priest. All right. While he was off becoming a priest, Abigail died, and Samuel had to come back, and he took over educating his two sons, Samuel and Caleb. And he, the goal was to prepare them for college. Okay. And they did go to college. Samuel attended Yale College and then later studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, fun. Yeah, neat. Mm-hmm. A year after his graduation, he felt the call to the priesthood, so he traveled to London and was ordained there. There you go. Like you do. Yeah. He makes it sound so easy. <laughs> it's like, I've got a doctorate. Yeah. Why don't you make me a priest? There was no mention of him going to any kind of schooling for theology, so I don't know if he did. Okay. <laughs> or he might have just rolled in and filled out some paperwork and... Maybe. Done whatever they do to make him a priest? Yeah, it's unclear. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so he got ordained in in London, and then he was appointed as a missionary for the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel. Great. And was sent to New Brunswick, New Jersey. Cool. During the Revolutionary War, Samuel was a very strong loyalist, Mm -hmm. and one of the ways he showed this was writing several loyalist pamphlets under the pen name A.W. Farmer. Short for a Westchester farmer. Adorable. Among his pamphlets were, this this one will sound familiar, I'm sure, Free Thoughts on the Proceedings of the Continental Congress. Oh yes, there's a guy standing on a box and then Hamilton wrapped over him. Yes. This is where we are. Yes. Now we are at Samuel Seabury, the nerd of Hamilton. Cool. We're in Act 1 of Hamilton, somewhere in like the beginning middle. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the first song that I memorized because I'm... So white. Oh my god. <laughs> Brian, that is adorable. But not not on purpose. It was just the easiest one. Sure, because it was like well-paced in a way for your brain to rec- pick it up. I guess. Um, Wild. So he wrote that one. He wrote Congress canvassed and a view of the controversy between Great Britain and her colonies. He basically just went 
back and forth in a war of pamphlets with Alexander Hamilton for several years. Fun. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure it was hilarious. I don't know that it was hilarious. It was probably for Hamilton. Maybe. I don't know. I guess the question is, like, was Pamphlet Hamilton as sassy as musical Hamilton? I don't imagine he was. He must have been at least a little bit sassy, though. You could probably describe it as a spirited debate. Sure. <laughs> Great. So, so they're in a pamphlet war. Pamphlet war. And Samuel, this is really the, that's that's all I have on Hamilton. Okay. It's, he's just a minor character in this story. Great. So we've stepped out of Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, and Samuel Seabury is going to go on to do other things. Yeah, I mean, we're still in the war. Samuel was arrested in 1775 by patriots, and he was imprisoned for six weeks. And after he got out, he was commissioned to serve as chaplain to the King's American Regiment. He also used his medical expertise to aid the British troops. So, big deal. Pretty involved. Yeah, I mean, I guess he was both a doctor and a priest, so he was useful in a lot of ways that the military at that time needed. Yeah, very helpful. (laughs) Just for England. (laughs) Yeah, which makes sense. He, as part of getting ordained, you had to swear an oath of loyalty to the crown. There you go. So, he did his thing. Yep. (laughs) And finally, the war ended. And he settled in Connecticut. Okay. But he's still loyal to the crown? Well, this is where things get fuzzy. I can tell you for sure a point where he stops, but he probably, pretty soon after the war, well, actually, yeah, definitely very soon after the war, stopped being loyal to the crown. Great. And that moment is, it's when the king recognizes the sovereignty of the United States. Okay. Basically. Which... Seems kind of like a weird thing, Mm -hmm. but I found this quote from another Anglican priest at the time, the Reverend Dr. Inglis, the rector of Trinity Church in New York. Okay. He was also a staunch royalist. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, by recognizing the independency of America, the king gives up his claim to my allegiance. All right. So they no longer have to be loyal to the crown because the crown has recognized them as independent. Yeah, so it's, we are now officially a separate thing, so now I'm loyal to this place where I live, which is now its own place. Great. There you go. That's kind of where we're at politically. Cool. So we're, we're in Connecticut. The war's ended. Probably the reason he settled in Connecticut is because out of the new states, mm-hmm. Connecticut is where the Anglican Church remained the strongest. Sure. Um, because... Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Church of England didn't fare so well. Yeah, that feels like it probably wouldn't go so hot. Connecticut had exactly 14 priests, Anglican priests. It's a very specific number for a not very large place. Well, I mean... They're probably as large as they came at that time, but... And this was probably the highest concentration of Anglicans was in Connecticut. Sure. And so 14 priests, 40 parishes, and no bishops. Okay. So the Connecticut clergy realized that they would need to get an American bishop if the church was going to survive in this new country. Yeah. Because at this point, technically, the Bishop of London was in charge of the Anglican Church in America. And they were not them anymore. Right. And also just very far away. It makes logistics tough. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you need a bishop. Yeah. So two months after the peace agreement was signed, Mm -hmm. 10 out of the 14 Anglican priests in Connecticut, they gathered secretly in the village of Woodbury. All right. And it had to be a secret because there were a lot of people who still did not like Anglicans. Yeah, they didn't want people to know that there was a gathering of Anglican leaders anywhere. Right. 
My, my question is, what happened to the other four? I don't Maybe they were busy. <laughs> sure. I just know t- 10 out of 14 made it. Okay. <laughs> At this gathering, they elected the first bishop of the Episcopal Church. Is this when they declared it the Episcopal Church? Yeah, they end up calling it the Episcopal Church. Great. They elect um, the first bishop. Yep. The Reverend Jeremiah Lemming. Adorable. <laughs> Lemming? Leeming, L-E-A-M-I-N-G, Leeming, Leeming, not sure, but he refused. (laughs) Because during the war, his church was burned down, his possessions were destroyed, he was imprisoned for months without a bed. Oh, (laughs) Uh, poor Jeremiah. And he had been left with a limp after all of this, so he was done with this shit. (laughs) He was not about to risk, like, getting hunted down by people who didn't like the Church of England. Right, because becoming the... First bishop in this new church that was going to be more independent, but still had historical ties, if nothing else, to England, was a political thing, and people were not going to like whoever it was. That's sure. Yeah, that's right. So Jeremiah said no. Okay. (laughs) He was also pretty old, so like, fair. Okay, fine. (laughs) So they fell back on their second choice. The Reverend Dr. Samuel Seabury. There we go. <laughs> Who, of course, was totally used to being hated by everyone because he had spent all of his time writing pamphlets to Alexander Hamilton and could probably handle public shame a little better. Well, he because he wrote under that pen name, people actually did not know it was him until after. Ah. So at this point, still, they don't know that it, that it was him. Okay. Um, but people do know that he was currently receiving a pension <laughs> from the, the British Army. So... Sure. <laughs> he was going to probably be on somebody's, like, no-fly list anyway, so right. not, he could probably handle it. N- yeah, there, I'm sure there was a group of people who did not love Samuel. Yes. So he agreed to become bishop and sailed off to England to be consecrated. Ah. The reason we can't just do this in the United States is because the Anglican Church, the, Angli- the whole Anglican Communion, including the Episcopal Church, believes in apostolic succession, which we've uh, talked about before. Correct. Um, which is one bishop has to consecrate the, the next, next yeah, in an unbroken to. line. Mm-hmm. So if you, you have, they had to go back to the line to right. be a legit bishop. Yes. So he had to go get someone to agree to consecrate him as bishop. Yeah. Some bishop somewhere had to do this. Right. So he headed off to England, but no one wanted to consecrate him. Oh, poor Samuel. <laughs> His reception by the Archbishop of Canterbury was described as polite but cool and restrained. Of course. The Bishop of London received him cordially on a personal level, but was not disposed to take the lead in the matter. Okay. And the Archbishop of York would express no opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it has to be an archbishop, or can it be a regular bishop? I don't know what the rules of apostolic succession are. I think it can just be a bishop. I think it has to be multiple bishops. Or one archbishop. No, I, th- I think it that just has to be multiple bishops. Okay. I don't think you technically need an archbishop. Okay. I don't know. But, but still, no dice for Samuel. Right. The big problem is that he refused to swear an oath of allegiance to the king. Well, yes. He's part of a new independent country now. Right. We had that shift. Yeah, and this is the first time that the Anglican Church has had to deal with this because every other place that they've spread to up to this point has been a colony. Pretty much. They yeah. were like, 
spreading out to adjacent neighboring countries that were actually countries or colonies of other countries. So we do have other branches with closer ties within the UK. Like there's the Church of Scotland, the Church of Wales at this point. But I'm just thinking like in say the, at this point, the British held territories in Asia. They presumably have Anglicans. Mm -hmm. And... Those Anglicans are loyal to the crown because whatever holding is still at that point under the control of England, but they're not like then missionarying out to adjacent either colonies or independent countries that are have their own leadership. Right. Yeah. There. This was. This was kind of the first. For, we're gonna go off somewhere that's completely separate from you. Okay. And do this same thing. All right. There we go. So they're still trying to figure out what they're gonna do with this whole thing. Yeah. So yeah, he's. He's in England. Nobody is really moving on this. Sure. Because and because it's the Church of England, so you have to get the politicians involved. It's not just a church decision. Yeah. So Samuel waited for months for the bishops and the politicians to make some sort of decision. Privately, the Archbishop of Canterbury complained to Samuel, of the people in power, there is no getting them to attend to anything in which their own party interest is not concerned. Oof. He might have approved of Samuel, but couldn't really do anything about it. Bummer. (laughs) Finally, a year later, a bill was passed authorizing the Bishop of London to ordain deacons and priests without an oath, but not bishops. Okay. (laughs) So, not super helpful. Not yet. Samuel was becoming pretty desperate at this point because... He did not have a steady way to make an income, and his patience was wearing pretty thin. Sure. Yeah, this has to be frustrating. Yeah, so he decided to try a new route. He climbed in a stagecoach, and he traveled 500 miles over some rough roads to Scotland. Okay. Um, And perhaps because the Church of Scotland has faced its own suppression because of the Presbyterian Church, they were more sympathetic to the American Church's plight. Okay. They were not so sympathetic, however, that they didn't try to get something out of it for themselves. What did they ask for? They agreed that they would consecrate Samuel Seabury if he promised to take the Scottish liturgy back to the United States instead of the English liturgy. Interesting. How different were these liturgies? It's a lot of little things. Like, the the main one of note is the epiclesis, which is... The calling down of the Holy Spirit on the Eucharist. Okay. There's a the hand movement associated right. with it. Okay. So is the hand movement the part that's different? I mean, there's, it's different wording. Okay. But that's the level of things that we're talking about. It's okay. like, symbolically, this is very important. We believe in this thing. It's our Scottish thing. You should bring it to the United States. Yeah, if you do this, we're good. There you go. And he said, all right. So, at last, on November 14th, 1784, Samuel Seabury was consecrated in Aberdeen, Scotland, by Robert Kilgore, Bishop of Aberdeen and Primus of Scotland, Arthur Petrie, Bishop of Ross and Moray, and John Skinner, the coadjutor Bishop of Aberdeen. And thus, the Episcopal Church was formally established. There we have it. Ta-da! Hooray! Now he's got to get on a boat and go back home and with a bunch of Scottish books of common prayer and tell. And that's what he does. He goes 
back to Connecticut by way of England, where no one agrees to call him a, by his title, Bishop. Sure. <laughs> sure. And he is back in Connecticut and remains Bishop there for the last 11 years of his life, during which time he saw his Scottish-inspired communion prayer included in the first American Book of Common Prayer. Oh. A mark that he left on the church was he really fought for the importance of weekly communion. That was big for him. Yeah. Those were like kind of the some of the bigger legacies of Samuel Seabury. Nice. Yeah. And one last fun note on mm-hmm. the relationship between the Church of Scotland, the Church of England, and the Episcopal Church. That unity is commemorated on the Episcopal Shield, which was adopted as a symbol for the church in 1940. And so that's the symbol that you probably think of when you see... I don't know what with, you just It's like did. the shield with the cross and the little... I don't... That last... Oh, no, it's this one no. with the little... Oh, yeah, it has the little flag in the corner. So it's... Yeah, it's a shield with a, a big white cross. Yeah. I'm cheating. Yeah. Uh, the, the big white cross is St. George's Cross. Yeah. Which symbolizes the Church of England and the Anglican heritage of the Episcopal Church. Sure. And in the upper left corner... Is St. Andrew's Cross. Yes. There's little white crosses that are on a blue background that make up St. Andrew's Cross which commemorates the Scottish church allowing Samuel Seabury to be ordained. And the little crosses that mm-hmm. make up St. Andrew's Cross symbolize the nine original dioceses of the Episcopal Church. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And those were Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware. There we go. Now, how did they get the name Episcopalian? I mean, we've talked about it before where it's the Episcopos is in, yeah, is one of the classes of leader that is in the the Bible, right? Yeah, in the Bible. So they drew it from that. Yeah. Okay, cool. It makes sense that the Episcopal Church doesn't call itself the Church of America like Mm -hmm. the other ones call call themselves like Church of England, Church of Wales, Church of Scotland, Scotland, because it was independent. They didn't ask for the opinion mm-hmm. of Congress when they were picking their their bishop. Sure. And they were sort of intentionally politically separate. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So that's the fun little story about the Episcopal Church and nerd of Hamilton, Samuel Seabury. I love it. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Is Samuel Seabury a saint? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I don't, I, I would say like 99% no. Okay. That would just be fun if the Patronage Pop Quiz was also Samuel Seabury, but I don't think he counts because he's an Episcopalian. I mean, Episcopalians are not, they're, they don't like canonize people yeah. quite like the, the Catholic Church does, but like they still recognize saints. Sure. So maybe someday. I, I guess maybe. I don't know. It would be cool. I don't... Yeah, there's not there's not the same pushing for new saints. Yeah. So I would be... I'd be pretty surprised. Okay. Well, who is our saint this week? This week, the saint is Saint Cecilia. All right. Tell me about Saint Cecilia. Cecilia was born in Rome in the late second century to a very wealthy family. Okay. At a young age, she declared her love of Christ and vowed to give her virginity to God. Great. 
Classic. So we bypassed the tried to get married and then decided not to. We just went straight to child devoted to God. I hold your horses. Oh, God. (laughs) As is often the case, her parents did not care and decided that she would be married. Oh, great. There we go. There's our, our classic early female saint trope. It was agreed that she would be married to Valerian of Trastevere. I think that's... Sure. sure. It's... Yeah, I don't know. I, l- I looked it up before and I've forgotten because I was too busy talking about Seabury. That's fine. <laughs> Upon hearing of her betrothal, she began wearing sackcloth, fasting, and praying to all the angels and saints to protect her virginity. There you go. During her wedding, pagan celebration music was being played, and to drown it out, Cecilia sang a hymn of love for her true spouse, God, in her head. Aww. But just in her head, she didn't, like, sing it out loud? Nope, just in her head. Okay, but it made her feel better. It did. After the wedding ceremony was complete, Cecilia and Valerian were expected to consummate their marriage. Before anything happened, Cecilia told her new husband that she had taken a vow of virginity and there was an angel protecting her. You know, just before we do this, you should probably know. Yeah. (laughs) Valerian asked to see the angel as proof. Cecilia told him that he wouldn't be able to see it until he was purified, so he would have to get baptized. Ah. But it wasn't enough to just get baptized. He had to travel to the third milestone on the Appian Way and be baptized by Pope Urban himself. There we go. Possibly thinking that this would finally settle the matter so they could move on with their lives, he agreed. Oh my god. (laughs) I can't decide if this guy is the best, the worst, or the dumbest. (laughs) He did. He he got baptized. (laughs) When he returned from his baptism, he saw her kneeling in prayer. And beside her was an angel, also in prayer. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Then the angel got up placed a crown on both Cecilia and Valerian's heads, and offered to do Valerian a favor. He asked for the conversion of his brother, Tiberius. Okay. This was granted, and the three of them began a new ministry of giving proper burials to Christian martyrs. There we go. I mean, somebody had to do it, right? There were lots of martyrs at this point. There were a lot of martyrs. The two men were arrested for this. Of course. And let me guess, eventually martyred. (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) Sorry. I just get excited sometimes. First, they were told they could go free if they would just make a sacrifice to the local gods. Sure. Then they refused and were martyred. Okay. (laughs) After their deaths, Cecilia traveled the countryside preaching, and she converted over 400 people to Christianity. Wow. Eventually, she too was arrested, and she was condemned to death by suffocation in the baths for spreading Christianity. Ooh, that's a weird new way to martyr someone. Yeah, they get creative. It's weird. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, you can only hang, burn, and crucify so many people. Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> they were bored. So she was shut in the baths for a full day and full night, and fires were stoked up around it to extremely high heats, and it was all around her, but she didn't even break a sweat. When the officials heard that the execution was not working, they sent in a guard to cut off her head. The guard tried three times, but he was unable to decapitate her, so he just left her there bleeding. Oof. And she lived another three days. Wow. That's miserable. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. During those last three days, crowds came to collect her holy blood. 
because... Because, you know, weirdos. (laughs) And while they were doing that, she preached to them and prayed. When she finally did die, she was buried by Pope Urban and his deacons. Officials exhumed her body in 1599 and found her to be incorrupt. I was about to say, and found that she was incorrupt. There it is, yep. We're ticking off all the boxes today. She's a pretty big one. I'm kind of surprised that I haven't gotten to her till this point. Her body was draped in a silk veil and she wore a gold embroidered dress. Officials only looked through the veil. They didn't actually like pull it back as an act of reverence and they made no further examinations. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Open it up. Nope. Yeah. Didn't rot. Yep. Huh? Goodbye. <laughs> Interesting. Didn't rot. But they did report a mysterious and delightful flower-like odor which proceeded from the coffin. Well, there you go. So what we learned is that dead saints smell like flowers and not like dead... Yeah, I guess. I feel like we've had at least one other saint that has smelled like flowers when they were dead. That kind of goes with incorrupt. Sure. Yeah. So, Shannon, what is Cecilia the patron of? I'm trying to find the right word for this. Is she the patron of... Probably virgins, right? Or, like, people who pledge their virginity to things? You're close. Okay. The one that you're close to is bodily purity. Okay. Is she also the patron saint of something that has to do with, like, burying the dead? Like, undertakers or gravediggers or something like that? See, that would make sense, but no. (laughs) Fair. Is her husband also a saint who might also be the saint of, like, gravediggers or something? I didn't check if he's a saint, but that would make sense for him. Sure. Okay, but what is Cecilia's list? We'll talk about Valerian some other time. (laughs) Cecilia is the saint of the Academy of Music in Rome, Italy. Okay. Of bodily purity, of composers, of luthiers. I don't know what that means. Sure. Maybe Uh, people who play lutes? Maybe. Of martyrs music, musicians, musical instrument makers, poets, and singers. Nice. I was gonna guess martyrs, but I felt like having a saint of martyrs was, like, too much because a lot of the martyrs were saints. It felt too circular for me. Eh, you know, martyrs need saints too, I guess. Okay, sure. I just, I looked it up and Luthier redirected to musical instrument makers. Okay, so maybe people who make loops? Maybe. Sure. <laughs> there we go. Something like that. Something musical. Lots of musical things yeah, for her. That's and that's her big one. That's what she's well known for is being the patron saint of all things related to music. Great, yeah, with the humming and the all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Thank you all so much for listening this week. If you're enjoying yourself, go tell a friend. Tell a friend you go to church with. Tell a friend who goes to church who you don't go to church with. Go on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review. Drop us a rating. If you want to tell us your weird Hamilton religion crossover stories. Uh, We will gladly accept those in our email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. You can also tweet them to us if that's your jam at school number four heathens or like us on Facebook at school number four heathens. Yeah. I was also gonna mention why Samuel Seabury was on the brain. Oh yeah? Yeah. Because you mentioned that Seabury building at Northwestern. Mm Mm-hmm. Formerly the home of the Seabury Western Seminary, yep, at, which combined with Bexley Seminary and is now located in Hyde Park. And <laughs> I'm just drawing this out, and Shannon like cannot contain herself. <laughs> they um, would cut that part, but really, I'm literally <laughs> eating my own hands. <laughs> we're not cutting that. Oh my God. Um, 
I'm going there. Oh my god! <laughs> I've known for a couple of weeks, and Brian told me that I couldn't say it on the podcast until it was official, but congratulations, Brian is officially going to seminary, which is super, super exciting. I'm catching my breath again, finally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and the questions that I'm sure you all will have is, but wait, what will the opening be? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I won't. Be a priest be... for several years. And you won't be a theologian, technically, because your degree's in divinity? Is that how that works? I, it's, I, don't, I don't know the, the semantics on that. But regardless, I won't have that degree for three years. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll change the opening when we feel like we need to change the opening. And other thing, just like, be ready, I'm going to be taking classes. This show might be less on schedule than it yeah. currently is. We will work our way through the summer and the beginning of the fall, and then we will talk about what the shape uh, the show is going to take that's going to work best for Brian's seminary schedule. But don't worry, all of you heathens and non-heathens out there, we are here for you. And I got so excited I didn't even finish the credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been telling people the schedule is going to look like Doctor Who. We will just disappear for indeterminate amounts of time, but we'll always be back for Christmas. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And maybe it will be like some sort of codified regular schedule that's just different than weekly. Maybe it will be random whenever Brian has really fun ideas and has free time. Who knows? Anything's possible. But thank you all so much for hanging with us. Know that we do intend to stay on a fairly regular schedule at least through the early fall. And then we will make adjustments from there. Uh, Before I forget... All of our music is by Adam Griffin. All our logo and editing are by David Griffin. I think that's everything. Those were the only two things I think I forgot to say. I don't know, unless you wanted to say a fun thing about David. Oh, um, thanks, David, for uh, editing the show at least to the end of this month. I have to take up that mantle in September as well. So bear with us as I work out all the kinks in my editing skills as well. You have been such an asset to the show, David, and we'd be lost without you. Um, um, now that I'm breathing again. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm-hmm.